Hi, I'm Roxy. And I'm Priska. And we are the two horny goats. Welcome to episode four, where we will cover artist activism and creativity in the time of COVID. That's a big topic, Rox. I mean, Priska, I know there's like a lot. There was like so many words in that, like I was going to say job description, episode description. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. we're going to cover some heavy shit today. But in order to keep ourselves light, um, let's do some icebreaker questions. Okay. okay. It's like, yo play light. Here we go. Here we go. We ain't ready for go. the real yo play yet. Here we go. What was your AIM screen name in high school? Oh my God. Okay. I, I had a few because, you know, that was like the thing. But my first one was definitely Asian Dragon 13109. Um, and my sisters and I had to share it. And it wasn't just an AIM screen name. It was an AOL like email account. So it was Asian, A-Z-N, Dragon. <laughs> of the course. The Z is capitalized, clearly. Of course. Of 13109, because I was 13. Uh, my sister was 10 and my youngest sister was nine. So really creative shit. But the one that I ended up using the most was Corniac. Um, and it was a playoff of Brainiac, but I was corny. So I've been telling dad jokes since like forever rocks. Like this isn't a new <laughs> occurrence, but it was Corniac, um, Corniac. also with a K at the end. So I get, I've been the same person. I haven't changed. Like Priska Muzik. Muzik. How about you? What's... Corniac with a K. Yeah. Wait, I have a really quick question. So what? if you and your sister shared that screen name, yeah. how did your friends know who was talking to what? Like, well, we weren't really allowed to use it we just had it like i don't know it was probably honestly so that we could set up our neopets account (laughs) you know what i mean like you needed an email address to sign up probably um and so yeah that's probably i know i you know my poor neopets i feel like um like peta's coming after me because they're out and starving on the farm (laughs) those are the days where all you have to do is take care of like this one digital animal that like only does two things and, and then it's so it, cute i know i just remember like just watching them just kind of like hover in place you know what i mean that's pretty much all they did i still don't understand neopets but i stand neopets you know what i'm saying mine was the very first i had two screen names the very first one is an embarrassment it's hottie chicky chick hey <laughs> Wow, this hottie H O T T I, obviously uh-huh, chicky, duh. like with an I at the end, and duh. chick with a C at the end. Like. Oh my god! So it's not just chick; it's chic. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh, that's true. Hottie, chicky, chic, chic. and like. Uh, I was like major impostering syndrome. I was like, I'm not hot and I'm not like a hot chick at all, but I'm going to call myself a hot chick so that everybody will think I'm a hot chick who's never met me. And, um, and then, but the second one that I really liked, which was more mature was electric violin 88, because obviously got to rep the string players. And I'm saying, and then I know that everybody looking at that, they're like orchestra nerd. And I'm like, (laughs) but it's electric. So that makes it cool. And you know what? I don't know why, but that it brings like the color in my, mind when you say that is the color blue like for whatever reason so really yeah i don't know why but and that matches your hair color so i think again we are always the same person you know we are consistent through and through um on your buddy list uh which which section would i have been in you would have been in i only have one because i didn't have many friends no i (laughs) bet like i bet you had a like I talk to these people a lot group and then like, oh, friends from school group. No, you never know. Everybody was just together because I thought AIM was like the 
the coolest, craziest thing. And I wanted to be friends with everybody. Yeah. Also, I like was, I, I know I was really popular in college, but I was really unpopular in high school. Yeah. I'm and with you. I mean it. I mean it. <laughs> like I was a loner. Like I was yeah. not a social butterfly. Like I was in groups and organizations, but I didn't have a click. Right. Right. Uh, I remember you talking about that in our last episode and it's like so unbelievable given the person that you are today. But I think what's interesting about AIM is it's basically, it was all just a DM box that that's like what AIM was like how we (laughs) use DMS right now is basically what AIM was. And I remember I got in college, like, you know, we went to UC Irvine and they had a bunch of dance um, crews at our school. Uh, Roxy Mm -hmm. was in one, but I remember someone gave me Mike songs like AIM screen name and I didn't know Mike song I don't know Mike song but legendary Mike song there you go like if you don't know look him up and you'll know Um, but I just added him to my buddy list I never messaged him but it was just good to know you know when he was away when he was at the library it's creepy as fuck it's creepy like when I get I see my crush like enter with that little door sound on AIM I'm just like oh my god oh my god oh my god they're online they're online and then you just like (laughs) click on them and read their bio or like their little about box and I would just read it endlessly yeah. You know what I mean? Like, over- is that lyric about me? <laughs> <laughs> or you fantasize about that, you know? Yeah. Like, oh, those are the days. Oh, that sounds so sweet and innocent, I like know. thinking back on it. It's so different. And now that we're older, everybody just has a ton of baggage and everybody has too many feelings and we're all just fucked up. Yes. That's uh, crazy. <laughs> okay, Rox, a question for you. What was yes. a food you hated as a kid? As a kid, the food I hated when I first came to the United States was mac and cheese. I could what? not wrap my head. I know, I know, I know. It's blasphemy. <laughs> I, I like went to elementary school in New Jersey and like, okay. you know, they had school lunches. And when I had mac and cheese, it was disgusting to me. I was like, wow. this is so soft and mushy and so much cheese. And I just did not like it. Like it felt vomity to me. And <laughs> it's only like now that I'm older, I've acclimated and I've pre. And it's ironic because I'm from the Netherlands where we yeah. have so much cheese so much cheese um, i think it was a texture that freaked me out and made me think of like uh soft brains um oh. so i've always had a very overactive imagination even as a kid yeah and i read it about like there was one time in goosebumps did you ever read goosebumps i i did where like the the kid or like the main character only had like warm mac and cheese to eat <gasps> and i somehow just is subconsciously ingrained in my mind that i was like if I was ever in trouble or like in life and death, like that's the only time I would eat mac and cheese. Oh, okay. but I love it now. So right. what, what, <laughs> when did that change for you? Cause I feel like sometimes we grow into like, you know, new taste buds kind of, it was when I met my best friend, Rochelle Flauta, <laughs> our best friend, Rochelle R. Flauta, uh, R Kelly. And so Rochelle and I were roommates in college and, um, <laughs> you know, she would get really high, um, <laughs> some nights and then she'll like cook like craft mac and cheese yeah, and she'll yeah. cook like a pot of it and she'll oh, just be eating the pot like straight the spoon straight from the pot like at four in the morning when I come home from like NCIA practice and then um and she's like I'm so stoned (laughs) and then then she eats it so much she loves mac and cheese yeah and when it's like in your environment like in your home that's when I started appreciating it and now when I think about food I'm just like uh there's this a YouTube uh chef called Song Kyung Longest oh yes I love you know Song Kyung yeah and she goes if you don't like something it's because you haven't had it the right way and I am a firm believer of that yeah I feel that way about uni like I think a 
a lot of people mm-hmm. are like, I don't like uni. And I'm like, I don't think you've had, if you're eating like airport sushi uni, you're not going to like uni. But when you have like the ultimate uni experience, um, maybe like in Hokkaido or whatever, um, then your life has changed forever and everything else is just a shadow of what that uni experience was. Oh my was, God, you know? really great uni, the buttery sweet. Uh. Oh God! It's so I haven't sensual. had good uni in so long. I know. Wait, what about you? I pretty much ate most things as a kid, um, but I, I would say like the taste I grew into were onions, like raw onions, um, mm-hmm. and then wasabi. I was like not about wasabi, and I'm still waiting for the day that I grow into liking like pickled ginger. It's not my thing. I, I, I'm not a huge ginger person, and my husband will eat it by the cupful, like mm. pickled ginger. Um, I'm still so, I'm waiting for that day. Uh, but yeah. I think those were my, not necessarily like a dish, uh, but just like flavors that I had to grow into. Now, I love onions now, love wasabi now, but you know, wasn't my thing growing up. And uh, I ate some pretty nasty stuff as a kid. I, I just, my dad would like, you know, the the Kimbo um, branded um, chicken stock. Mm-hmm. It's like at the Asian grocery. He yeah. would literally just pop two holes in the top and hand it to me cold, and I would just chug it. That was Shut up. that was me. That was my that, normal. That, that, you're kidding. That's disgusting. No, I know. I know. Um, Roxy, I thought this was a safe space <laughs> where I'm like sorry. we don't judge each other, but I can see from your eyes. <laughs> that you're judging me. My dad had some very creative uh, ways of, of, you know, making lunch for us. Because uh, like like I said, um, my mom went to work. My dad was a stay-at-home dad. So we had those gender reversals <laughs> at home. But yeah. the one sandwich that I actually refused to eat was I think he made a rosong, which is like pork uh, floss rosong with American cheese sandwich. And that was just <laughs> too far. That was one that was too food. far. Yeah. I, like, I opened it up and I would eat anything he would give us. And he gave us some, you know, pretty out there stuff. But the rosong with the American cheese inside two slices of white bread, I was like, no, I'm all for innovation. I'm all for, you know, combining culture with our, you know, like our heritage with American culture. But no, that was too far. God bless you, Papa Leon. God bless. Yeah, yeah. Now he now he looks up recipes, so I'm very proud of him. Oh, he's growing. I love that. He's growing and and so are we, Rox. We no longer have AIM screen names that uh sound like porn names. <laughs> no, now you could just DM me, honey. honey. You could slide into my DMs. Oh, hey, hey now. All right. Well, we are going to get into topic 1. Rox, what's topic 1 today? All right. So, we've been in quarantine in los angeles for how many months now it's uh, now august and uh march april may june july august for six months now oh half gosh. of this year we've been stuck in quarantine yo it is insane and uh you know at the very beginning i remembered feeling super heightened with all of these emotions about like the uncertainty and like your identity as an artist because me and priscilla are both artists and um how to feel motivated in order to create our own work and also there were a lot of things that started to transpire um the elections are happening this year and then there's also the black lives movement the question is how do you feel the motivation to be a part of something bigger while stuck in isolation so there's like a powerlessness that comes with this experience and how to sort of move past that and work on during this time yeah so how has it been for you like have you been feeling overwhelmed when you're seeing protests have you joined what's been kind of your what space have you occupied it was very interesting because um 
I felt so restless Mm -hmm. at the start. I still feel restless actually um, during this time because I'm in self-isolation. And um, I think that anybody who is self-quarantining for this amount of time, this is longer than Beijing has done it. Like this is literally the longest time, like us doing it here in the United States. It is very fucking hard. And it, it, it takes a lot of your mental energy and you need to be conscious of your mental health. It is healthy to talk to people about it and to not feel so isolated and depressed about, you know, the what's to come or what's not to come because you literally have no idea so during this time um especially during may during asian pacific heritage month me and my friend anthony ma created an online show called so what now and it was supposed to be and it was a show to bring people together um artists in the asian american community to sort of um make ourselves feel like we're not alone and to find different methods by interviewing different artists about their process of creating during this time in isolation. Got it. And when Black Lives, when, when the protests first started happening, I remembered we were airing every Saturday and um, the protest started on a Saturday, the first weekend of June, I believe. And we had an episode going up and it felt so wrong. It felt so tone deaf. And I just said to, you know, my producer and Anthony, I was like, I know we're trying to do this thing right now, but it feels like during this time, these topics take over everything at the same time. Like there really is no diversification or like everything's really focused and honed in on a major thing because no one has a rat race anymore to take away our daily distractions. So social media becomes this like endless echo chamber of like what you're not doing right. What are you doing? If you're doing something, is it right? You know, like this endless cycle. And moment to moment, it was like, this is the right thing to do. And then the next moment is like, well, you might have thought that that was the right thing to do, but this is actually the right thing to do. And if you're not doing this now, and it was just like, you could never stay ahead of the curve. You could never be fully up to date. You could never feel um, like you were doing enough or, or, or maybe feel like you were, you were saying exactly the right thing because it was evolving so quickly and everyone's just online, on social media, um, and that's the only way they're interacting. And social media is not a great place for discourse, you know? It's not. And also, you know, you were telling me about that black box upload that everybody was doing on Instagram. Yeah, and like, can, Yeah, and tell me, like, yeah. what happened to you with it. So, yeah, I mean, I think I was feeling very helpless. And I, mm-hmm. I am not the most well-versed. I am not, uh, I wouldn't consider myself an activist, but I have activist friends, you know, and I go to them, um, for, to see what they're saying and what they're doing. And I honestly, I take that into account and then I kind of reflect on it. And then I, I respond the way I I feel I need to, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and I have, you know, really trusted amazing people like, you know, Sean Mira, Jenny Yang, um, Atsuko Akatsuka. Um, and I go to them for advice and I see where they stand on things and it helps me to form an opinion because I do the research on my own, but publicly I don't really know always like the right way to word things or the right way to present things. So yeah, I uploaded a black box out of just sheer frustration and wanting to stand in solidarity. And I did, I used the wrong hashtag. I, I used the black lives matter hashtag. And, um, I, I was very quickly, gently reminded to, you know, delete it, take the Black Lives Matter uh, hashtag off and to use a different one. And and so I, I really appreciated it, actually, because it was a lot. It took a lot of work to, I think, be policing those hashtags. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't think I was 
called out in a negative way. I was just gently, you know, um, educated on what was happening. Mm -hmm. But it also really called out to me my own performative activism and made me want to then just seek alternative ways um, to support. So like donating money to different organizations, you know, um, making sure that I was sending emails in and making sure to contact senators, all, all these things. I like call in and, and email. I was trying to do that behind the scenes um, and I was trying to vote with my money, basically. I, I don't have a ton of money, but I tried, um, gave what I could. And then there was a trend that happened after that where people were like viciously calling people out some for good reason, but just basically saying, if you're not posting about this on social, like I'm unfollowing you or I, I'm not down with that or, you know, and, and for me, like the stress level that I think all of us, we were already feeling, I was like, social media is not the only way um, that people are able to help and make a difference, you know? And uh, I honestly don't know the right way I was supposed to act. And I didn't know the right things to say. And I tried to say what I could. Um, and I actually had quite a number of conversations with very good friends of mine, just kind of consoling them um, because they felt called out for not saying or doing enough. And I very much so disagree with really chastising people for not posting because I don't think that actually encourages behavior. I don't think it actually encourages action. No, because you're forced into doing it. Like it's yeah. not coming from a genuine place. And also it's like this whole thing comes down to you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Like yeah. everything's become sort of like this binary algorithm. Right. Like on the internet and in real life, like I've seen so many of my friends go to war with each other, like really good yeah. friends who stand on the same values and all of this like anger and energy just sort of riles everybody up to the point where we're blinded, Yeah, you know? Yeah. And I get it. Like this, this energy, this anger is contagious Yeah, and it takes over everything. So it was really interesting to sort of see all that transpire so quickly yeah. in June, like a, so with, so what now, how did that end up? Did you end up airing it? Like, and how did that end up feeling? I mean, it felt, I mean, we aired it anyways. Yeah. Um, and I was just like, what are we doing? You know, like we put a little placeholder text at the very front to talk about, um, George Floyd and, uh, Ahmed Avery and Breonna Taylor. And we talked about that, but, um, it just didn't feel right. Also, we were transitioning out of Asian Pacific Heritage Month and my partners wanted to continue the show, yeah. but it was an exhausting show to produce. You know, we're doing everything remotely. We're doing comedy sketches. And I was like this, we need to like move out because it seems like there's another thing that's taking place of people's attention right now that needs that attention. Yeah. So, um, so it was interesting to sort of explore that. And also like everything else that came during this time, like it happened like one right after the other, like the um, backlash on Asian Americans, you know, mm -hmm. the racism aspects and then um, and then Black Lives Matter. Like it, this this time has been so interesting. And I don't know how you feel, but how do you feel now mm. that sort of like after June, it feels like things have slowed down. But what are some of your perspectives on that? I mean, I think that's what's interesting is is obviously the the movement is not over. Right. There's so much work to be done. But I think this is, it's proof positive of performative activism in a lot of ways because a lot of the posts have died down. Um, people have gone back to their regular programming. Yeah. Um, honestly, don't have a criticism of that. I think my, my thought on it is just that 
kind of like how we're treating the coronavirus, some people are just sick of it. And it doesn't mean that it's not, that's the wrong word choice, but they are fatigued, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're extremely fatigued. They're fat- they they want to go back to aesthetically pleasing posts, you know? And I think the fatigue is what happens when you weren't that invested to begin with. Um, I've been thinking about the model minority myth a lot because mm-hmm. um, I think during this time, I think as an Asian American, you know, um, my husband just kept saying like, the mic is not ours right now. And I think that was a little bit challenging um, for all of us to fully accept, um, mm-hmm. which is just like, it's not our turn. It's not our time to speak. We need to be amplifying um, black voices, obviously. Um, and, and also like our thoughts on it can be important in private, like, right? Like you and I had conversations about it privately. Um, and right. we had to work out a lot of like how we were feeling. And I, I was contacting, you know, like activist friends of mine and just asking questions and having those conversations. But it, the mic had to go to other people. With Asian Americans, a lot of times it's a little bit of a, like a murky moral quandary because historically we have both stood in solidarity with our black brothers and sisters and um, there's a lot of anti-black sentiments um, in our culture, like in terms mm. of first-generation um Asian immigrants, like my parents, my grandparents, um, like there, there's anti-black, um, sentiments that are just like very like subtle, but they're, they're rooted in our culture. You know, there's deep roots in our culture. And, um, it's just so incredible to me, like the way, like when you read more about, about the model minority, it wasn't just, it it was used as a tool. It was used as a tool and basically uh, occurred when the, the black power movement was coming into full force, um, it was used to kind of distract from it. And it was used to basically say, these minorities are doing so great. And it's because they work hard. And it's because they're law abiding. And it's because, you know, all these things, and they're doing great. But when you call a minority a good minority, you're then you're inferring that then there's a bad minority. Um, and so that's like so damaging. And it was used as a way to kind of dismantle the work that was being done. It's like giving classism to like already marginalized communities. And like now we're trying to make up for it by being more intersectional. Right. You know, because I really do think that we need to be more intersectional, like just because you're 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 Latinx, you're black, you're Asian. Yes, we have different experiences. Yeah. But on a whole. Yeah. Like we're all suffering oppression from, you know, just systemic oppression. That's exactly right. And I think especially in L.A., like, you know, my my husband grew up, uh, he was here during the L.A. riots. um, Mm -hmm. And he just remembers, you know, the tension between uh, blacks and Asians at the time. And and Mm -hmm. and it has affected our city like it still exists today. Like those sentiments are still they're underlining a lot of what's happening in this city. But actually, like you're saying, the, the, the tensions between black and Asian communities, it's ultimately like a distraction from the fact that we all exist within a system that's designed to keep us on the margins, that's designed to keep us powerless, that's designed to like make us less. And like it's better for us to black and Asian people to fight amongst ourselves instead of actually standing together in solidarity and fixing the systemic issues, you know? And you know what's kind of interesting is that, like, that model minority thing keeps us small, Yeah, you know? Like, um, I think my parents, like, wore that with pride, that, like, totally. white people loved Asians and, like, trusted Asians and, like, gave them better jobs, you know? Like, all of that sort of blanketed under the guise of, like, oh, yeah, here's a pack of dogs and this dog is the best dog. Right. But you're all still dogs, yeah. right? Like... 
Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, did you have conversations with your parents about this? Because, you know, I, I know it's a heavy topic, but. I totally did. And it's, it's extremely difficult, mm-hmm. you know, and like you just have to do the work. I find myself getting very angry and very impassioned every time they come back with, you know, just uh, their perspective on the history right. of blacks. You know what I mean? And um, it, it's sort of like the preconceived stereotypes of like what keeps them in certain enclaves or social enclaves or like um, being criminals or like, you know, being part of like being gangsters or, or just like the stereotypes that they had growing up and what the media has fed them and what they thought they knew. And like, working against that to be like no 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 this is all systemic like this was created and this was the after effects of those systems you know and if things were different if the structure was different like opportunities would be different and the results would be different and like you know I think a lot of this has to you know I'm dating someone who's black right now Mm -hmm. you know what I mean and um he's obviously going through like when black when this black lives matter thing was happening and the protests were happening like he and I talked a lot about this stuff and yeah. and for me it was really great to have that sort of insight to be able to feed to them too Absolutely. because it's like how can you truly understand it's like of course like people who don't like gay people how many of them have a gay friend mm-hmm. how many of them you know have like a diverse community of people once you make friends with someone from that community that you previously have a stereotype against oh, we're going back to stereotypes yeah. like you wouldn't be thinking the same way because then you see them as human right, right? so it's um, not just this, you know, other, or, yeah. yeah, which is don't terrifying. Be, don't other people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I find myself having to control my, my reactions with my, with my parents yeah. and, uh, having to really think through what I'm saying and like know the impact of my words and like be succinct about the facts yeah. of why things are instead of their preconceived notions. What about you? Have you? I'm curious. I think um, I think my sister who lives at home at the moment, she's had more conversations with, like, say, my father. Um, and I, I think the problem is a lot of first-generation um, Asian immigrants, they have internalized the model minority myth. And mm-hmm. so I think, yes. you know, I was mm-hmm. showing my dad, like, you know, that cartoon that was like, you know, equality and versus justice, right? And what that actually looks like. And um, like equality is like, yeah, you're all technically standing on level ground. But um, justice is like, if someone is at a disadvantage, you you should raise them up so they end up being at the same level, right? <clears throat> like the, mm-hmm. the like evening the, the playing field. And for him, I think it was hard because, you know, he's like, but we did work hard, but we did bootstrap, but we did, you know, but we did behave, but we did follow the rules. And while that's mm-hmm. not untrue, it's also not the point. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's, it's really missing. Uh, it's losing sight of the fact that basically, like, we've been called out as a success but that's hiding the fact that there are systemic things that are pulling other minorities down. Like we're privileged in the minority. Yeah, exactly. Sector. Yeah. yeah. So it's kind of, it's created a lot of internal conflict for me as I thought through, you know, um, everything that's been going on because I want to be a good ally. Um, and I'm still like figuring out how to best do that. I think it's still, yeah, this time has been really important in peeling back the layers and like having us take the blindfold off of our eyes to all the different things that need fixing that we were just ignoring before. Yeah. And, um, and so nowadays it's just like, 
there's so much stuff happening. Mm-hmm. I just want to make everyone be aware that like, if you could do it, do it, but don't let people make you feel guilty just because this anxiety and all of this, all of these emotions are really heightened right now. Yeah. So as long as you take care of yourself and the people around you and you do your best with the energy you have, that's honestly enough. Yeah. And you and know? I think it's important to allow ourselves, ourselves, the grace um, to continue learning because yeah. if we make ourselves an immovable point, I mean, we're not going to continue to pro- progress, right? And then two, I think we need to allow grace and space for the people around us to also continue learning and to continue growing. And just because someone had a thought doesn't mean that that thought is an immovable point. And to just allow for dialogue, conversation, listening, you know, and then honestly, like doing our own research so that when we come across a teachable moment with a friend or a family member, um, we're able to really engage in productive conversation instead of just kind of stonewalling or like being like, oh, you're canceled because you think that way. I think we need to be having like much more nuanced conversations and we need to have the ability to allow people to grow basically. Focus on being constructive. I think that's like a learning thing for everyone too. Yeah, totally. And now that I'm thinking about it, I lied. Not that I lied, but I just had this revelation. Yeah. No, things aren't slowing down. I was like, right. now everyone's focused on the election, you know? Right, totally. And, and you know, ev- all the systemic things in this country cannot be blamed on the current Im- administration. But also, if you're galvanizing a group of racists, it's definitely making the situation worse. There's all this stuff happening and like cancel culture, which we will also touch on on a later episode. But in terms of like, I'm going to shift the conversation back to what we can do within our own bubble, Mm. like and going back to artistry and like being creative and using your voice and your platform and your influence. Like how do we leave a legacy of what transpired during this time? Because our job as artists, at least for me, is that like my work is a reflection of what's happening during this time. Right. So like for me, I felt like what was really worth it was I don't know what to do on a global level because I am just one person. But for me, it's like what we were just talking about, constructive dialogue, right? So I was like, in a previous episode, I talked about, yeah, I'm a filmmaker. Cool. That's fine and fun. But what really motivates me and what really inspires me is being able to create panels, discussions, and building a community online, bringing people together when we're isolated and uh, doing our part in making sure that we're all learning something and that we're all not alone because I could really see a huge detriment. Like people are going to need a lot of therapy coming out of this. Oh yeah. 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 You know? And so, uh, doing that part in sort of, uh, making people feel like we're in this together is what I felt was most effective for me during this time. What has that creative process looked like? What has some of the work that's come out of this time looked like? I know you're writing scripts. I know you're, you know, playing Mm -hmm. violin. Um, (laughs) like, you know, just let me in on that a little bit. I've never been this, I mean, I've, no one has been this physically isolated for such a long time before, you know, at least in the past you could go out to a coffee shop and you can work and there's energy around you. You will see that you feel not alone despite working alone. And there's like a really great comfort to that. Mm -hmm. Um, there's zoom fatigue Mm -hmm. now, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's really digging into our subconscious and like, uh, I think, it's slowly starting to fester and come to the surface the longer that we're in this, honestly. Right. And uh, for me, 
I realized that I have to like now that restrictions are being eased. Oh my God. It was just a world of a difference when my building opened up its patio again and I could just sit outside and like type, like do my rewrite outside instead of like in my room. Like I felt so happy, like being able to appreciate the breeze on my face. Mm -hmm. Well, I had that, like it felt like a world of a difference. Like I'm appreciating the smallest things now, you know? And I think that's like the beautiful thing, but I will say that I don't know. I don't think the old Roxy is, is the same anymore. Like, I think I'm definitely a lot different now and I'm just trying to keep sane by creating structure for myself every single day, but I can't lie. Yeah. I don't know. I think that, I I think you bring up a good point. I think that, I think there are artists that are specifically doing activism art. Yeah. Um, And then there's, um, I think kind of more similar to the approaches, the philosophy that you and I share. It's like allowing yourself to be steeped in the moment. So with everything, all the violence, um, all the pain, all the awful racist things that are happening in our country, allowing us to like bear witness to it and then use that to then be distilled into our art. So the art that we're making at this time, I'm sure, isn't specifically activism art like i'm i'm not writing a song about um specific situations Mm -hmm. but i am bearing witness to this time so no matter what um all the art that i create during this time is going to be imbued with that um sensibility you know um and i think like even for my for my husband and i like we were just working on covers and I remember we were working on this one cover and it just happened. We chose this song called Hey Ma. And the day we were recording it was maybe three or four days after um, the death of George Floyd. And not intentionally, and it, it's just a cover, you know, but not intentionally the way that we approached singing the song had a very different meaning when when we're singing Hey Ma. Like, it has a very uh, different context. And even though, like, mm. I didn't, I didn't put it out and say, this is a, you know, this is for X, Y, Z, but because I was affected by that, because we all collectively bore witness to that, I was able to take everything I was feeling and imbue the work that we made during that time with what was going on. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, yeah, because I think the flip side to that was when this first started happening, this quarantine started happening, like all the filmmakers were like, I'm going to make a quarantine script love in a time of COVID, (laughs) you know? And I'm like, literally everybody is fucking doing that. And it's really not original. I'm like, Mm -hmm. can we just sit and process and absorb everything that's happening right now? Because I honestly feel that we are still in it. Like it's only until we're completely out of it that we have time to reflect back. Yeah. And look at it from like a more bird's eye point of view where we could see in a much bigger perspective because right now we're just protagonists or antagonists, however you want to see yourself living in this space. And it's really hard to see through, to be honest. I think the yeah, I think you're totally right. And I think the biggest thing that it's done for me is in the past, like I made it a a point not to really take a hard stance, um, on, on anything politically. Like obviously I was liberal leaning, obviously I, I loved Obama. Um, but I never took a hard stance publicly on, on, on specific issues. Um, and, um, you know, one of my biggest quote unquote fans, I have like, you know, one, I have like one fan, you know, and he's great. (laughs) But like, uh, I have a fan who's, um, a, a very vocal Trump supporter. 
Oh. And back in 2016, um, I was ready to cancel everyone who was a Trump supporter. I was like, and I'm done with all of you. And, you know, to an extent, I still feel this way. But having this fan who was a Trump supporter who kept showing up to show off their show um, and getting to know him as a person, um, it really affected me a lot because I was like, you know, it doesn't matter um, what our political leanings are. We can all enjoy art and music. And And I was like very aware that like, um, my music could be enjoyed by someone uh, who doesn't have the same perspective as me, right? Because that's art is bigger than the artist. Art is bigger right. than anything I stand for. However, I would say that I took such a lukewarm stance um, to kind of protect myself, protect my reputation, honestly, to make it so that like I wouldn't be um, divisive in any way. But I think the time for that is is done. <laughs> I think that now we do have to do everything to make sure that we vote this administration out, yeah. um, the current administration out because, um, of the absolute destruction that is happening in our country. Um, you know, we, I feel galvanized. I feel ashamed that I didn't do more previously. Um, but I feel empowered now to really try and use whatever platform I do have, um, to speak up about these issues. Because it's like, you must live a life of integrity, you know, and our job as an artist, because in our 20s, it's all about getting to that place where we could be seen and to have that voice. And now that we have the microphone in our hands, we must speak the truth. It is our responsibility. It's true. Well, all right, guys, we're going to take a short little break and then we're going to dive into topic number two. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, Goatees. The highlight of our week is getting to hang out with all of you. If you like hanging out with us, why not recommend Two Horny Goats to a friend? Whether it's your coworker, quarantine buddy, or a long-distance BFF, drop them a link and we're available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Hey guys, welcome back from the break. Uh, we are diving into part two of episode four here, and we're going to be talking about individual artistry and processing how this year has changed the way we do things. So, Rox, can I ask you first and foremost... What was it like when COVID hit and um, you went from, you know, working crazy hours to all of a sudden being in isolation? What was that transition like for you? It was really difficult because I think at the start of the year, and I'm sure you felt this too, everybody was like, 2020 vision, 2020 is going to be my year. I know. And and I had a movie that was going to go in April, a feature film. And then I had, I was going to go to Indiana for like this really cool science fiction film. magical realism project and wow. I was really doing a lot of prep. I shot a short film about tokenism and casting in February and I was like, this is my year. You know, this is it. Mm-hmm. And then like everything shut down and then everything stopped. And then I yeah. just remember that day when they were just like, you know, shows Pen 15 was getting pulled. Like everybody like it was so surreal how wow. quickly everything just stopped. What was that day like for you? Like what was the day where it was like, oh shit. I was at home. (laughs) I was at home. Uh, And then I was by myself and I just started, you know, hearing, you know, looking at Facebook, seeing everybody's updates. And I was just saying to myself, this can't be real. Like, oh my God, I never thought that this would happen here in Los Angeles. And uh, because Fauci was saying, oh no, we could still prevent it. You know, like Mm -hmm. there was all this talk because like everybody, the, the Asia was talking about COVID and 
you know, I think other countries are taking precautions and Donald Trump, you know, was like, yeah. it's not going to be a problem. But it's going to disappear. It's going to disappear. And then it's very confusing rhetoric for sure. It's very confusing rhetoric. And then right when that happened, I was like, oh, my fucking God, what the fuck? And mm-hmm. then I started going on a spiral journey. I was listening to all these podcasts about covid and like yeah. I heard Fauci said that, you know, I can't predict what's going to happen, but we don't know if that's going to happen. And everybody was in this la la land of like, maybe it won't you know like maybe yeah. it won't and yeah. then it did and then like we go through not the five stages of grief but like that that thing when yeah. uncontrollable circumstances happen and then you just have to accept it like you just have to accept right. your circumstance and, and just do your best with what you have and I remember I just started dating somebody that I really liked and um, I'm like what's dating gonna look like now we can't like see each other ever again like so much for my romance right, right. I was supposed to find like a spouse this year I'm just kidding <laughs> but like I was it trying was to manifest I know <laughs> and then um, and then I was like alright well I'm just going to give myself structure picked up painting started wow. playing the violin again and for a little bit it was great like it was okay. it was just like wow i'm really relishing this time to myself wow i'm like really this will never happen again this time for myself so let me just cherish it because we thought it was going to be like three weeks <laughs> or, you know or at most like a month you know yeah, at most a month and do you remember that time when they were like oh we're going to release restrictions in may and then it yeah. got to june and then yeah. it got to july yeah and now it's like end of 2021 yeah so i mean when did that shift for you you know you're enjoying yourself you're you're, you you are living the conservatory life you'd always wanted to live my in-house residency (laughs) exactly exactly without the tax like stipends but you know um what when did that shift for you i think when the restrictions or the lift kept getting pushed back And then I realized that everybody was in it at the beginning, but then when they lost faith in how the federal government, you know, was handling things and people weren't taking it seriously. And then you have these anti-maskers come out and then you have like all of the, like the true nature of the underbelly of America, the ugliest side has revealed itself. That's when you lose hope. That's when you absolutely lose faith and you're just like, the fuck am I doing? You know, like... I'm trying to make the best of my situation, but I don't think I really can. But then it makes me think about like all those wars that have raged on for years and years and how people have to come out of that. I mean, obviously this, that's no comparison to this, but it just, um, I think what I'm really dealing with, I had like existential dread for the first time this year. Like I would wake up in panic in the middle of the night and I have never felt more lonely or more Mm. isolated and not knowing how to come back from that. And that's a very scary feeling. Yeah. I remember how, you know, when after George Floyd's death and once the, the marches started happening and, um, you know, um, you know, seeing the president on, on live TV, basically, call protesters you know um terrorists terrorists (laughs) violent looters like just basically instead of walking back racist remarks he's made he doubled down on them and i think and then all his supporters started following suit i got really depressed i I lost hope as well I, i was not good for anything i was like laying on the ground unable to move i was I couldn't believe it. And then the COVID idiots started coming out with the, you know, uh, COVID deniers, basically. Um, All of that combined together 
it made it really hard to feel motivated to do any artistic work. But so were you able to dig down in that and still create or did that kind of hold you back for a bit? Like, what was that process like for you? It felt like doing art was meaningless. Yeah. Because it's just like, well, what's the point if it doesn't attribute to anything? Because I feel like Mm -hmm. as a filmmaker, my job is to tell the story of what happened here. Right. And so, and a big part of me is also, I want to give hope, but how can you write about hope when you're in the middle of a time when it feels really hopeless. I mean, now, you know, Kamala Harris just got selected as Biden's VP. So there's hope, you know, Mm -hmm. and she represents, you know, it's a monumental, you know, historical, um, VP pick in our history. And that's incredible. It feels like this year is happening in extreme polarity and there's no middle ground. And it's really hard to sort of navigate through that emotionally, I think. Right. And so do you think that's motivated you to do more? Because, you know, on the other side of this, um, on the other side of COVID, like, what do you want to walk out of this with, I guess, is my question. Actually, I'm feeling like now that you've asked me that, Mm -hmm. I'm starting to see the real positive in it. Because like us doing this podcast, too, I think, is our effort in in giving hope and making people not feel alone and like our artistic contribution. It may not be in the medium that we're known for. But it's still our effort in trying to come at it from a different angle. Because when you write about music, you know, like, I don't know if I don't know if you've been in the mood to write music. I will for sure have not been in the mood to write about anything COVID related. I don't want to. I that's that's left for a different space. Escapism, my fantasies, my dreams. And like, but this is where I feel like like you and I are contributing to that, you know, Mm -hmm. like the discussion and being honest about what's happening this time. I mean, this is like a time capsule. We'll be able to listen to this in the future and remember how we felt. I think that is what we're trying to um, normalize is the fact that we have to like, like no one comes out with, with their stances fully formed, you know, it's Mm -hmm. not a one, it's not like bowling. You just hit it and then you hit all, knock all the pins down in one go. Like it's, it's requiring us to be really vulnerable to admit our gaps in knowledge and to do what we can to fill them with, with real information, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And also doing our part as social citizens. Yeah. Right. You know, like I think the social responsibility and like, um, this time has really allowed us to see a big unraveling in a big part of that, um, yeah. which is very disappointing, but also is the reality that we live in. Like I sometimes still think about this year and I'm, just thinking that this is like the worst episode of black mirror ever or we're in the worst possible timeline for 2020. But at this point it's like accepting that and like learning how to deal with your anxiety. I have really bad anxiety like from this year. And, um, I think, yeah, I, I I wanted to see, cause like I'm now, I'm now really afraid of leaving isolation. Like, are you, Mm -hmm. are you there too? Yes. Like if tomorrow they were like, everything's up, you can go everywhere. I no. I don't know that I would be able no. to. No. Would you go to a bar that's like full of people? 
Like, would you drink from, would you go to a buffet? Like, would you, you know what I mean? It's like all of these things that were so normal to us. Now we have, we're suspicious of everything. We're having like a double take. Yeah. Like Roxy and I used to go on wee spa dates because she lives across the street from the Korean spa. And uh, I can't imagine when I'm going to feel safe enough to, to do that. Um, but even okay, if so, we were some somewhere else like Taiwan or something yeah. that doesn't have COVID it, or very small cases, I would still feel fear. I, yeah. I, I mean, I can't watch a TV show where they hug each other. Like I'm wincing, <laughs> you know what I mean? And like some like phantom pain. Um, but so what are, what are some ways that you've learned to manage your anxiety? Like what are some tools that have worked for you in this time? And you know me, Prisca, you've known me for a very long time. You know that I usually don't like to lean on people. But I think this time more than ever, I really have asked for help. I've asked for my friends to create, you know, and and my friends are always like you and like so many of my other amazing friends have um, really created space for me to lean on. And I think that's like a really beautiful thing because in the past I'm like, I don't want to burden people with like what I'm going through. But the fact of the matter is, is that if you don't take care of that, yourself and you know you don't establish trust and vulnerability in the friends that are closest to you yeah then you know what are they for you know it's just like (laughs) yeah and like it just gives me great comfort in that and um I think that is like the biggest tool for me because Mm -hmm. it was so hard for me to be like that because I was always that person that had their shit together but that's just a projection and you were always the person people could go to for advice. People would go to you for stuff. But exactly. I remember it was a challenge for you. Like even when we were first living together and we were like 24, 23, like I remember one day you broke down and you were like, I just feel like I'm overloaded with everybody's secrets, but I don't know who I can tell them to, you know? Yeah. And yeah. like, it, it's amazing what this time has done in terms of bringing the relationships that truly matter to you to the fore. I don't know. Sometimes though, my anxiety has made it so I don't want to contact certain people because if I don't talk to them, then that means they're fine in my head. I don't know if that makes any sense, but I haven't. No, it does. It makes total sense. Cause like for me, it was like, I have an aunt who lives in Oregon. She's my favorite aunt. I would want to talk to her every day. Like when I go visit her, we talk for like 12 hours straight without stopping, you know, but I almost have anxiety about calling her for fear of some sort of bad news and it's almost like the schrodinger's like cat thing like if i call am i causing a a covid you know what i mean which is so preposterous but in my mind that's some of the anxiety that you know surrounds those calls those experiences no 100 percent, because you need to ask yourself how much can you handle yeah how much can you absorb from other people right Right. So it's like you have a very tender, compassionate, empathetic heart. It's like you're always if I'm going through something, you're always just like, hey, call me whenever. Yeah. You know, like any time, three in the morning, whenever I'm here for you. But right. this depletes your energy because when you there, I mean, I think it's good to just be very particular about who you share yourself with at this time as well, because everybody only has so much capacity yeah. to manage, you know, um, those energies. It's true. So. It's a lot because we're all sort of going through the same thing. And, um, you know, in the beginning I was doing tarot for people because I was like, what can I do to help them navigate to this time? But then Mm. I started feeling 
everyone's darkness and everyone's grief. And it became very overwhelming. Like the weekend of the protest, I could not get out of bed the whole weekend. I just felt so heavy and so depressed in a way that I haven't been before. So, um, yeah. So now more than ever, I'm just focusing on what brings me joy and it still feels so far because every, you know, I just love being around people and I love doing things, going places. I think we all do, but this situation has created such a lack of balance. Right. So I suffer from extreme anxiety, right? Like I, I've had, you know, you know, this, you lived with me. Um, I've had panic attacks where I've, my entire body has gone numb. I've fallen on the ground and I've blacked out basically from, from anxiety. Um, and you know, I've talked about, you know, recently, uh, my, my family on my mom's side is BRCA, um, uh, positive, uh, which is basically, the um, breast and ovarian cancer gene. Um, And so I've lost a lot of family members. And on top of that, I've also been, you know, a part of a team of our family members who have been part of um, basically palliative care or critical care or, you know, um, you know, uh, just like end of life care. Mm. And it's made my anxiety so much worse because every time I'd wake up and get a phone call, I'd be like, who died? did they die did the surgery is it an infection like you know is the cancer back it are do they have to do more chemo do they have to do more radiation like so i'm so already like hyped so now anytime my mom calls me i'm i'm convinced it's going to be like she's sick with covid you, you know what i mean I, I have this like already i have anxiety built into me but this whole time has made it so much worse because um you we could lose someone we love with within the span of a week it's terrifying. It's genuinely terrifying. Yeah. Like I was just hanging out with you one time, socially distanced, obviously. Yeah. And like your mom called and then you panicked. I panicked. You saw it. You, I, I freaked saw it. And then, and then you kept calling her back and she was like, oh, hey, what are you doing? And you're like, is something wrong? Is something wrong? Yeah. Is something wrong? Yeah. She's like, no. <laughs> like everyone in my family knows to pick up, like when, when I answer the phone from them, they know to be like, everything's fine. Nothing's crazy. You know, because I've gotten so many bad calls. I've gotten so many um, bad calls at, and it's never at a convenient time. Like I, I remember I got, I got calls during a meeting and I called my mom back and it was like, uh, the cancer is, is back. Not, not for my mom, but for my aunt, the cancer is back. You know, you better get to the hospital to say goodbye. I feel like when you get bad news and you're always unprepared for it and you get bad news enough, it creates a like panic it, it's it's kind of mixed in with some sort of reward system because your brain is like, if I panic, then I can prepare. Yeah. But actually you're not preparing. Yeah. Um, and, and this is work that I've done with my my um, my life coach, Yannicka. My Yannicka. She is my Yannicka. <laughs> my life coach, Yannicka. Um, shout out to, to Yannicka. But so what she was um, telling me to do, she was asking me, clo- okay, let's everyone try this really quick. So close your eyes and feel grounded in your body. And now think of, uh, think of your anxiety and like, where in your body do you feel that anxiety existing? Where, where is it? Where is that for you, Rox? Head. Your head. Yeah. Interesting. And what does it feel like? Is it a squeeze? Is it a throb? Is it a poke? It's, um, you know, um, it's, it's a, it's a squiggle of black lines. Ooh. Wow. In my head. In your head. Got it. Yeah. And, uh. Sometimes my heart. Your heart, yeah. Um, but what does yours look like? 
mine's is a, a squeezing in the chest. It's in my Ugh. chest. It's like it's someone sitting on my chest. You know. Oh man, that's a lot of pressure, girl. Yeah. Right. I. I and you know. All of you, I'm sure your anxiety could exist in different places. Some people might feel it in their hands, right? Like when we fidget and whatnot. Some people might feel it in their shoulders. You might slouch a certain way when you're anxious. Um, and so if you were to picture your anxiety rocks, like what animal would, would your anxiety take shape as? It wouldn't be an animal. It would be a monster. A Have monster. you seen the Babadook? The Babadook, yes. Oh, my gosh. That's your that would anxiety? Be my, that's my anxiety is Shit, the Babadook. Girl. It has a top hat and a cane. That is, like, literally terrifying. That's the movie. Yeah. That's the movie. Yeah. It's, it's, it's about, you know. So you Well, that one that. represents grief. I live with that, yeah. So how do you, how do you man- manage this Babadook? I shut it in the closet. I feel like it's just like the movie. Actually. Wow. So do you yeah. shut it, shove it in a closet deeper into your mind or do you shove it into a, an, an extremity, an external part? Um, I shove it deeper into my mind, I think, which is not healthy. Mm. Um, and it takes a lot for me to have to unpack my anxiety because now, because I think I approach everything from more of a spiritual aspect, yeah. you know, like sometimes I, I have to be conscious of my overthinking and because I'm in isolation, so much my overthinking kicks into gear like into high gear whenever i'm alone right um and you don't have any distractions and so that babadook comes out Mm. you know out of the closet during that time and i have to be like go the fuck back in work on my four agreements don't make assumptions you know just like just chill the fuck out and like live in the present and live in the now and so i think for me meditation yoga Mm. grounding being able to be outside in nature for a little bit taking a hike like all of this is good for me to make that monster in my closet just go away for a little bit um but it's still something i'm working through it's ever present yeah um your anxiety monster priscilla strangely so it's it's less of a monster and and you know when i was doing this visualization work i was like my anxiety is a little bird in a cage. And I don't know if any of you have been like in a restaurant and had a bird fly in, but this bird freaks the fuck out. And I think its Mm. first instinct is just to flap like crazy to get Mm -hmm. anywhere, like anything to get out of that situation. Um, I've seen a bird fly into a glass window repeatedly until it like passed out. (laughs) And I've never related to a bird more, you know. So I think my my anxiety takes um, the form of a very very terrified bird, um, and it's in a. I can visualize it as a as a cage sitting inside of my chest, and mm. there's this just bird that's constantly flapping. And I think the the power of visualization is this: is that's what it feels like, and now I can understand how to self soothe because I can. I can almost like put myself in the shoes, well, um, in the, I don't know, wings of the bird and um, kind of have like both exist within the bird and be like an omniscient external bird, um, uh, like be of the mind of what's outside of the bird as well mm-hmm. and allow myself to kind of like soothe the the fear and the anxiety and the, um, the frantic nature um, by doing that. So it's like the visualization tool helps me soothe the bird in the cage in my chest, which then helps me like learn to calibrate my anxiety. I don't know if that makes any sense, but that does make sense. 
it has helped me walk back numerous panic attacks um, just by kind of almost like separating out the anxiety so that it doesn't get to bleed into every pore, uh, into every level of your being, you know, yeah. but it, it yeah. can exist in a specific space. So that's, right. that's been helpful for, for me. Because we have to live with our anxiety. It we doesn't do. just disappear. It doesn't just go away like, like no. a magic thing, you know? No, absolutely So you not. have to learn how to take care of your little anxiety animal. And mine is my anxiety monster. <laughs> yeah, Baba Duke. What's <laughs> up? What's up? I just need to learn how to communicate with him. <laughs> um, so, uh, Prisca, you asked me a little bit like how I was dealing with everything. But strangely enough, you've had practice for this. And like... In yeah. the beginning, when I called you and you and I talked about it, you were like, oh, I've been in training for this since my <laughs> Ashland experience, but now it's been six months. Yeah. So I want to like talk to you about like, has your mindset changed about that? Has it gotten worse for you? Has it improved? Yeah. Like, what's that like? Um, you know, I, I'm a pretty big people person. I, I love, you know, performing at gigs. I love talking to people. I love being around, um, all of that. And I think, uh, growing up as a PK, we constantly had people around us, whether it was Mm -hmm. people, my parents were ministering to, whether it was, you know, we went to church like five times a week. Um, I I am accustomed. I I do love to be around people. Uh, You know, I, I've never met a small talk that I didn't love. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) Um, however, uh, when I was really young, when I was seven years old, I, I broke my leg and I was in the hospital for about a month. And then I was in a cast for another two months. Um, so that was three months as a seven year old where I was completely bedridden. I broke my femur. Thank you. Thank you. It's uh, the strongest bone in your body. Hey, hey, <laughs> hey, <laughs> uh, never How met did a, you a couple? Yeah. I know. Never met a bone. I couldn't break. You know what I'm saying? Um, I was like, Ooh, the hardest bone in your body, the most difficult to break. I'm a break it. <laughs> Breaking challenge barriers, accepted. Yeah, exactly. So I, I spent a lot of time in isolation, um, because my parents, you know, couldn't be with me in the hospital 24 seven. They would, um, go off and, you know, do, church duties and, and work and whatnot. Um, and so that helped me, I think, learn patience because literally you, you can't do anything. Um, you just have to lay there and accept your fate. You know what I mean? There's, it's not like something you can will your way out of. Mm -hmm, You just have mm -hmm. to like relinquish control of the moment. You just have to like, I don't know, I guess I go into almost like a, a semi fugue state. Um, Mm -hmm. and then in eighth grade, I broke my knee and I was on, um, I was, on bed rest for a month as an eighth grader. And I don't know if you've met an eighth grader recently, um, but they are not about like, you know, uh, boundaries and they are not about <laughs> like not being able to go anywhere, move anywhere, um, see anyone, talk to anyone. Right. Yeah. So I was at home for a month and uh, again, I, I found ways to enjoy the separation, enjoy the pause. Um, and I think it affected my personality for maybe the better, but I was a very a type personality. I was a gymnast. I would wake up every day at six. I would do all these workouts on my own. (laughs) Yeah. And I would go to school and then I would go to practice and then I'd go to like, like language schools on the weekends. And then I would go to like uh, abacus school. I would, um, uh, okay, to be fair, it was just that one class. But I, I was very driven. I, I was mm-hmm. all about it. Um, and, and piano lessons and vocal. I was so driven. I was on top of it. And then once this um, knee injury happened, one, I was stripped of my dreams. I, I, the doctor was like, you will no longer be a gymnast. There's no way, right? Um, and two, I, I was forced into isolation. And um, I became 
a completely different person. Like I became a B type personality where now I can like let things happen and just go with the flow. And like, um, I don't take, I don't take things too seriously. I don't take myself too seriously. Um, and I used to, I definitely used to. I think all of these things in my life have, have basically been preparing me for the world's greatest crisis, you know? <laughs> and uh, about a year ago, my husband and I, we moved up to Ashland, Oregon, and he um, he was in a play called the Cambodian Rock Band. Uh, we were living out there for about 10 months. And during that time, I, I was like, wow, this is going to be so great. I'm going to get to be an artist. I'm going to live the conservatory life. I'm just going to get away from the hustle and bustle of LA and like be so productive. Um, but instead I found myself very isolated because I didn't have a, I didn't have a job. I didn't have a social connection to anybody there. I was really just like Abe's wife, you know? Mm. Um, and I would joke around about that, but it, it actually was really tough for me to not be the person that they would call for anything. I wasn't needed in any way. You know, nobody in that community up there needed me. And I spent, and you need to feel needed. I do need to feel needed, but it also yeah. helped me unlearn my necessity for feeling needed. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, and it was like, I don't, I can learn to be, I had to learn to be friends with people without them needing me as a singer or needing me as a marketer or needing me as a, you know what I mean? Like there was no necessity for me. And so I do Mm. think I was able to form friendships in a way that I never had before because it was just based on connection and based on, it wasn't based on anything I could offer them you know? Um, and because I was bullied growing up, I had always felt like if I didn't provide a service or I didn't provide, um, a value proposition, um, what, what was the point of people? Like, why would people have any reason to need to be my friend? You know? Yeah. So anyhow, I was, I spent a year in isolation and it was really difficult. I was not, I was not productive the way I thought I was. I had to face a lot of my demons. Um, I had to face a lot of the, like the, the ways in which I had become, a rat race, I don't know, LA archetype that I hated. Uh, I had to really reflect and recognize like how I was also complicit in that, you know, and I had, um, I had behaved in ways that I'm honestly not proud of. And I had to make amends and I had to call people and I had to, um, really have a reckoning with myself. And that was really difficult. And I think that's what isolation kind of does to you. Um, and I think that's what I'm, I'm hearing and seeing from a lot of my friends that are going through it this year. But I guess like the depressing thing of it all is like, I reemerged from isolation like Roxy. I had my mood board. I had my plans. 2020 was the year. My husband and I moved to New York. I was like putting all of my newfound personal growth, like in play. I was, um, you know, I felt like I was, I was kicking ass and I knew myself in a way that I never knew before. And my husband's show was like on off Broadway and they were featured in the New Yorker. And it was like, Oh my gosh, like we are on the up and up baby. Um, and then literally two and a half months into all of that, into reemerging from isolation, suddenly the entire world is being forced back into isolation. And it was just like, no, like, like I can't describe the feeling that I felt other than just being like, no, why? Like, you know, um, it wasn't supposed to happen like this. Like, 
you know? You know what it feels like? It's like you're a genie in the bottle and then like uh, yes. someone released you from your bottle and then like you have to be condemned back into solitary confinement. Yes, it totally felt like that. And I'll never forget the day. Um, it's not like I was super successful in New York, but I was doing all the things that I, I you know, I'd done all this personal growing and it, and it was paying off. That That's all I was satisfied with, right? I wasn't, mm-hmm. I wasn't making big bucks. I was working retail, you know, but I, I was so happy. Like there was something about myself where I was like so comfortable in my own skin. Um, that was honestly really beautiful. And I, I will always cherish those two and a half months, you know, (laughs) but I remember the day where, you know, I went to work and, uh, you know, I think on that Monday or that Sunday, they had just announced, oh, we're going to be cleaning the New York subway every 72 hours. So we're going to be disinfecting it, right? It was like disinfecting theater, right? And I was like, okay, well, they're disinfecting the subway. That's NBD, no big deal. You know, I was, we were still going out to restaurants. We were still conducting our lives like very normally. Um, like during that time, I had, I had nannied. I had worked retail. I had travel. Like, you know, I, it was like life was so frustratingly normal up until you know the nba announced that they were you know basically canceling um and then broadway closed and then i was working retail that day when um you know the announcement started coming out and i went from a packed store um shout out to coriana that's what i was working i i went from a packed store from 10 like you know 11 a.m until 1 p.m and all of a sudden ghost town it was like a faucet. It was like it was like everything had turned off. And the two or three people that came through, they were like, "This is our honeymoon." You know, we had Broadway tickets, front row. Um, you know, and they're just like, "I'm fucking depressed, so I'm just gonna buy <laughs> you know kind of uh, jewelry." Um, this other girl, her flight to Europe had just been canceled, so she was fucking pissed. And you know, but it still seemed like weirdly normal. And then a, about an hour later, I get a text from my husband that their show went dark as well. And all of Broadway went dark. Um, and literally I went home with my, you know, I went home to my husband and our friend Joe and we got fucking plastered. Um, and then within 24 hours, we had to make the decision to come back to Los Angeles where our, you know, family and support system is. Um, and I cried the entire way home. I cried, I cried on the way to the airport. I was very annoying. I cried on the way to the airport. I cried at the airport. I cried <laughs> into a terrible hamburger that I had at the airport. I cried on the airplane. I wasn't even watching anything like cr- sad um, until we landed and we got to my house and my, you know, I left my car in California. My mom had filled my Prius with toilet paper, paper towels, Lysol wipes, all of the things that we literally could not have gotten in New York at that moment. Mm-hmm. Two weeks worth of, of, of ramen noodles, um, you know, some frozen goods, uh, frozen dumplings to be specific, because, you know, I, I'm, I think at this point I'm, I'm about 70% frozen dumpling. Um, <laughs> but, and uh, until we got there and I, in that moment, I realized this is the place we needed to be. This was the decision we needed to make. I have it so much. We, we are so blessed, um, compared to a lot of people out there. Um, and I, you know, took maybe a week and then I had to get over myself and then really realize I need to go back into a state of isolation, like mental, like the mental state that I recognize and that I know, and that I have Mm -hmm. prepared, been prepared for my whole life, I guess. And then really, start to, I guess, acclimate and become a sponge for this very particular specific time in history. 
we thought today was going to be a short-ish episode, but I guess we have things no, it's to say. This, it's, it's the same. It's the same <laughs> as yesterday's. <laughs> It's like we just like no, we're not educated enough. And we're, well, no, we still went on. We, we still we had a ram we had a rambling like you know honestly an imperfect conversation. But I think it's really helped me work out a lot of what has been kind of piling up inside my mind. How about you? Good, good. No, I'm good. The fog has cleared a little bit from this morning. I think yeah. in my head. So as always, love you so much, Prisca, for helping me work through I that. Love you, Roxy. And guess what time it is? You. Guess what time? It's time for. <laughs> Friska, what are your unsolicited picks for this episode? Okay, so I know we're all running out of things to watch, right? I'm pretty sure I've hit the end of my Netflix page. (laughs) I never thought that would happen, but it was like, you know, go get a hobby. I think when you scroll all the way to the end of Netflix, it says, please go get a hobby. Um, (laughs) So I've moved on to HBO Max, and uh, I I spent the weekend watching Search Party, which if you haven't seen it... um, you need to get on it. It's the girl from Arrested Development, maybe. Um, and um, she is incredible in this show. So Search Party, it's about basically this girl who gets obsessed with um, a, a missing person that she kind of knew very briefly in college. And um, she gets a little too involved with the search for this girl. Um, and she drags her, her family and friends into it. Um, it's it's a really great show. It's There's three seasons out. Um, my, my friend Courtney Reed makes a little cameo as the receptionist. So thanks, Courtney, for holla, giving me holla. life. Um, so yeah, that's my that's my unsolicited pick, and my second one is um, this Vietnamese restaurant. I, I'm so sorry for butchering the uh, pronunciation, but I think it's Tien Hong. Uh, yeah, uh, please correct me. Every like like let me know, teach me, educate me. Um, but yeah, they it is my favorite bowl of bumbleway in the city. Um, it is always uh, fresh and unctuous, and comes with these thick cubes of of pork blood that have you know coagulated yes. pork blood and uh-huh. it's got like a full calf's foot in it um the noodles are have a little bit of a snap to them they're kind of um they're kind of uh you know very circular so they're not like flat noodles uh, and like you get the fresh herbs and you pop them in there and on a kind of gloomy, like overcast day, like today, um, it's the perfect antidote. So I'm definitely, I, you know what? I'm just going to order this on my app right now. I feel like every time we do unsolicited picks and we talk about food, it's like, oh, I know what I'm doing right after this. Yeah. I'm going to support local businesses and like get some hot soup. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I got joy like a day after we had our last conversation. So hell yeah. Joy amazing. Okay. How about yes. you? What are your unsolicited <laughs> well, um, I just want to say, talking about self-isolation, uh, I just want it to, I just want to give out like a shout out for vibrator appreciation. Oh, so those of you work. singles, yeah, like those of you who are in your thirties and women are much hornier in their thirties and are single and, um, maybe you are dating COVID safely, safety, distance dating. That's all great. But if you are more on the cautious side, like right now, I cannot take any risks because of my job in Utah for the next two months. Um, I just want to give a special shout out to my uh, vibrator, um, Mm. Natasha. Yeah. Um, Oh, you named her. I love it. I love it. (laughs) She does a really good job for me. Um, you know, I've been, you you know, even yesterday while we were doing another episode, you could see her charging. (laughs) 
<laughs> like a Narzoom call. Like she's just in the background. You know, she's been busy. Because I've been over. She yeah, been it, it's good. <laughs> she's been busy. Yeah. But, you know, I also want to say masturbating takes a lot of stress off your my anxiety. Yeah. So uh, it's also, you know, pay attention to your sexual health. I think it's And it makes very your important. skin glow. So, you know. It's skincare. We're now a it's beauty skincare. pod. Yeah, it's important. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and then I, I'm also going to give a shout out to a special noodle soup place hey, no. uh, called Pho 4000 in K-Town in Los Angeles. And you've been here before. They're famous for their oxtail pho. Ugh. Oh, oh my god. god! I'm so hungry. I love it when you talk dirty to me. Yes, I know the oxtail is oh just like so tender, and the meat just falls off, and then like um, the lots of green onions oh in the soup, and then it's. Just I bet like you handle that meat, huh? Yeah, but you know yeah. what I'm saying. I just eat it all. Oh god! You get I your can't. lips around that meat. Mm. <laughs> gets your the lips way a little shiny. Down my throat. Hey, <laughs> hey, and and with pho four thousand, you always swallow. You know what I'm saying? Always swallow, bitch. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, guys. Clearly, the vibrator appreciation has dripped down into the next thing. <laughs> um, but you know, nothing tastes better after masturbating than a good bowl of pho, right? That's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to go masturbate and I'm going to go eat <laughs> bowl of pho. <laughs> You know, uh, I I fully support all of your endeavors. Thank you. You're the best. So, Rox, can you, um, I think it's time to pull a card for the collective. Oh, yes. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. okay. So, let's Send your vibes. Do... Send your vibes, everybody. Send this is uh, from the Rebel Deck Oracle with Attitude. Let's see. Messages for all of our listeners this week. What can we work on? What can we focus on? Anything that you're wondering about? Sorry, my deck's doing... Ah, oh, there it goes. I saw that. I saw that. Oh, yeah. So it says, drop the fucking ego. And then on the back, it says, vulnerability is hot as fuck. Ah, I mean, was were the cards listening to our conversation? I mean, I think so, too. I mean, like, totally. This is like what we're doing with our podcast. So (laughs) why won't nobody date me? Just kidding. Ah, I have too many partners. It doesn't matter. Everyone everyone would. If I wasn't married, I would 100 percent date you. You You know, the dream is for you, me, and a bunch of our friends to just live in a compound together and grow old, you know? I just want to be a sister wife with you. Because, you know, uh, sadly, men don't live as long as women, so you know we're going to be the last one standing, you know? (laughs) Like, we're going to see the the earth burn to a crisp before we die, you know? And we're Asian. We're going to live past 100. You know, it's all we have to look forward to. I can't wait till my 90s and just, you know, the sunset years. Oh, yeah, I can't wait until we're all in rocking chairs together being like, so what did you see today? Hey, and then, remember like, we when don't... we had teeth? <laughs> Wasn't that what? Great? And we'll be what like, did you say? Unsolicited pics. <laughs> My new denture guards are really fantastic. <laughs> this new oh, walker that days. I got at the corner store is better than the one I got on Amazon. I don't know why there we have go. a different We can't accents. wait to be old. We can't wait to be old. Uh, we're still going to be talking about skincare. <laughs> my wrinkles only hang down below my neck when I don't use this cream. <laughs> beauty pod, old woman beauty pod. There we go. Well, um, thanks for sticking with us to the end, guys. I know that was quite a roller coaster of emotions on this show. And, uh, you know, we're a third of the way through our season now. Rox, I can't believe that. But, you know, we've got some great episodes up ahead. So be sure to, you know, stay tuning in. All right, guys, have a horny week. Our lovely goatees, we love you. 
And remember, stay, stay horny. horny. This podcast is hosted by Roxy and Priska. Music by Abraham Kim. Artwork by Connie Yen. Please visit us at twohornygoats.com. Today's outro music features Sylvette by Soraya, a.k.a. Jane Louie. Jane says, this song is about Sylvette David, identified by her high ponytail in the large body of paintings and sculptures by Picasso. Unlike most of his muses, she was not a lover, which in my opinion pushed him to find her on canvas all the more. The same reason portraits of her are more stoic than those who fueled his work with lust, drama, and inevitable tension. Enjoy the song by Soraya. Can you see through every line? Papa say.